You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Like we said, Revelation is a book that is closed to a lot of people. It's a book that is neglected in the church, and it's a it's a fascinating book. What we are really seeing in Revelation is, is if I could class it as prophetic real-time, we get to witness in prophetic real-time what is going to happen in the future day of the Lord, the final era of Earth's history, the tying up of this age where we see things like war happening and these evil things happening and how that is finally dealt with. But Revelation chapter 9, I'm going to deal with half of it this morning. I would make a strong argument this is probably the strangest chapter in the entire Bible. It's one of those chapters where we get the veil of our world is torn back and we get to see behind into the spiritual realm that we don't often think about. And it is the little expression, truth is stranger than fiction. You'll see why I'm saying that as we go through this chapter. Now, the way we teach is we go verse by verse through the entire Bible. And one of the things that that means is that you don't get to skip verses that you don't want to teach on. You have to go through the the whole lot as they come, take them as they come. And that's very challenging for a a chapter like Revelation 9. You'll see why, but it's the Word of God. We love the Word of God, and there's going to be truth that God has for us to take from this. And I'm always reminded of Tozer's quote where he says, you need a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And that is one of the reasons why we, we go verse by verse, we teach the whole counsel of God, and Revelation 9 is going to be fun. But before we jump into that, I do need to just give you a little bit of background because more than ever this chapter confronts us with the reality that our worldview that is the beliefs that we have as Christians we hold to what we call a supernatural worldview that means we believe that there is more than just this physical world of matter and energy and things like that that we see we believe that there is obviously a spiritual realm too and we believe because obviously there was a mind, a spirit, before there was any physical matter at all. This is one of our arguments for God, actually, in that, in the field of apologetics. But this does apply to everything. We, we believe that there is a spiritual world too. Now, what we often fall into the trap of doing in this Western world, and we do this, I believe, because like many of our secular Western counterparts, we are children of the Enlightenment. That was the the time in in history when rationality was elevated to the point of almost godliness and it was a time where things silly superstitions like religion were pushed out of people's minds and this world this new mindset actually became almost like its own religion and it is that religion of secularism that is still dominating in many fields of academia, in the universities, and this is why you see that questions of God are automatically kicked out in these sorts of things. But this is what we see going on here. Now, as Christians, obviously, we don't go that far, do we? We don't completely disregard God. However, quite often we do sort of veer towards that enlightenment mindset when it comes to anything else other than God. Like, yes, we know there's God, But when we're talking about other things, angels, demons, the spiritual realm, because we're not used to thinking in those terms, we do almost veer towards like like the atheist mindset would, and we disregard all of those things. Now, I'll be frank with you, this chapter is going to blow that, if if you do have that mindset, this chapter is going to blow that out of the water for you. This is one of the most supernatural chapters that you will read, and we shouldn't really be surprised by this. Because if we actually come to the Bible with supernatural eyes, so to speak, we see 
that there are spiritual beings at work through all of its pages, from Genesis to Revelation. Think about what we've already seen in the book of Revelation, in the heavenly places. We've seen those amazing things called living creatures with their unusual description and they surround the throne of God. We've seen the many angels in heaven who are singing worthy to the Lamb, worshipping God. We saw these four angels that are holding back the judgments at the four corners of the earth. We saw this special angel that has the seal of God who came down to earth to seal the 144,000 Jewish believers. We know that there are seven particular angels that are charged with standing before God. We know that Gabriel was one of them. Jewish tradition gives us the name of others we looked at last week. Now, we may be tempted to look at this and say, yes, that's Revelation. It's an apocalyptic book. Of course, it speaks in those uh, sorts of terms. And yes, it, that is true. It does do that. But the whole of Scripture, you see things like this popping up. Let's go right back to the beginning of Scripture, the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. We see the first spiritual manifestation of Lucifer, as he's called, or the serpent, manifesting as a serpent, deceiving mankind to disobey God. A little bit later, we see that very unusual story of Saul and visiting the medium, the witch at Endor, and calling forth a spirit. These things are happening. There's a reason why most of the Old Testament commands the Israelites to not be involved with the occult. Many, many times, God said to the children of Israel, do not consult mediums, do not go to psychics, do not consult any of these people, because he knew full well that often those things are an entry point in the occult today. They call these things entry points to commune with spiritual beings. These are things that we, we try to maybe close our eyes to, or we kind of just say, well, they're all fakers, and you go down to the fair and you can find someone ripping people off to do stuff like that anyway, and that's probably true, but there is a reality to some of this stuff. This is the very reason why God commanded his people to not be involved with it. There is a serious element to this. Think of the time of the Exodus, the magicians that Pharaoh had, the Egyptian wise men that they had in his court, and they counterfeited some of the commands that Moses gave, some of the acts of God in that sense, to a much lesser degree, but they still had a power that was coming from somewhere else. All through the Bible we see this. In the Gospels even, we see much of this. Much of the ministry of Jesus is involved with confronting the supernatural component to the world. We don't often think of these terms. Think of Matthew 8. We see Jesus engage with two men who are said to be possessed by un unclean spirits. They were being controlled externally, and this was manifesting in these people being extremely violent. Much of what we see around the world in the physical, we don't actually know there probably is a spiritual thing going on behind it. This is often the case. And look at the words that these things say to Jesus. They say, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And this shows us a number of things about this world. They know who Jesus Christ is. Immediately they know who Jesus Christ is. And they say, have you come to torment us before the time? So they also know that their time is limited. They know that they are a defeated group at this time, and Jesus is the one who has done that. And thus, they say these sorts of things when they meet him. Another time, Luke chapter 8, Jesus in the, is in the country of the Gerasenes. He meets a man who is, again, possessed, and they, the, the people have bound him with chains, and he runs around the city naked. And Jesus asked him, what's your name? He's addressing the spiritual being, and he says, and they said, Legion. Do you remember this story? Luke chapter 8. 
For many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now, this is a very interesting phrase. So this tells us again, the demons were aware of who Jesus was and he was able to speak and command them at his will. But what they did do is they implored Jesus not to send them into the abyss. That's a very unusual phrase and it's one of these theological items that we don't often think about. But this is what Revelation chapter 9 is about, the abyss. We're going to be talking about that a little bit. Another concept that we meet in the Bible is what's called cosmic geography. You might be aware that certain principalities and powers, principalities and powers is the name given to these spiritual beings in the Bible, principalities and powers, and often they attach themselves to certain regions in the world. This is why when we look through natural eyes, there are many regions in the world that always seem to be suffering conflicts. This is probably a lot of what is going on behind us. We see a little glimpse behind the veil here in Daniel chapter 10. Do you remember the angel was sent with a message to the prophet Daniel? And when he finally arrives, he says, but the prince, he, he arrives late, he says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia, remember prince is the term for these powers behind the world, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. And behold, Michael, the archangel, one of the chief princes, had to come and help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Very unusual text here when we think about what it's saying. Absolutely foreign to our sort of physicalist worldview that we have. But what this is saying is that there was a prince, a principality, a power associated with the region of Persia that was actually able to withhold God's messenger to come and reach Daniel until the archangel Michael had to come and assist. Now, we don't really understand what that is going on and what that means, but yet, because we know that God is a spiritual being that, and this is the worldview that we have, we should not be surprised that we see these things. Geographical regions often are associated with, the, with these beings that, and these are beings that have rebelled against God. We'll get into that a little bit. We see this again throughout the Bible. This is why often, through if you study ancient cultures, ancient religions, you'll see focuses on things like mountains. Baal was worshipped on Mount Carmel. And you remember Elijah had to go up to Mount Carmel and he had that showdown. You go to Greece, or if you were in ancient Greece, they would have Mount Olympus. This is where the pantheon of the Greek gods supposedly existed. And what do we have in the Bible? As a, as a, a reality to all these things, we have Mount Zion. Mount Zion, where Jesus will one day come and rule and reign as a counter. Remember we talked about Satan. He always counterfeits what God does. And his, his minions, if I could call them that, always counterfeit what God does. They even appear as good beings to try and counterfeit what God does. He has his mountain. We're going to try and get our mountain. We're going to try and get people to worship us. This is the history of religions throughout the world. You can pretty much go back through every ancient culture and find a, a religion that is a derivative of the truth that we find in the Bible, but it is a corruption. Similar corruption. And we see these things going on and on, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. This is what is happening throughout the Bible. Now, we think when we read the story of the Bible, because we are humans, we like to focus on ourselves all the time, we think that it's all just about the salvation of man, don't we? Everything was just for us and about... Now, obviously, I'm not denying that. That is true. But that's our primary focus. But actually, as you read the Bible, you'll see that another theme of the Bible is that a lot of what is happening was a demonstration in the spiritual realm, too. God was doing two things at the same time. Paul mentions this. This is when he says in Ephesians 6, we struggle not against flesh and blood, 
against, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's very easy for us to look around at what's going in the world, pick a person and make them the enemy, but we also know that there's more than likely something going on behind the scenes there in the spiritual realm. And Paul is saying, as Christians, we pray into that spiritual realm. Do you remember we studied a few weeks back? We saw the golden altar full of the prayers of the saints rising up to the throne of God. This is the, the area that, that we do our work in. This is how God works. There's always a spiritual thing behind it. And he is saying that is where who we wrestle with. That is where the real battle is. That is where our prayer must be focused. Even the cross, the victory on the cross, is framed in terms of spiritual victory in, the, in this way. We don't think of it again like that. We think of the cross, that's where our sins were atoned for, absolutely 100% it is. But it's also talked about in a different way too. Colossians 2, verse 14 and 15, Paul writes, having cancelled, this is on the cross, having cancelled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. So that's, yes, that's the punishment for our sin was taken, we were no longer guilty, that was hostile to us, he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then look at verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's speaking of these spiritual enemies again, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through the cross. So much theology in this verse. The background to it, I've probably shared this with you before, but Paul is using the background of a Roman triumphal processional. When Roman generals defeated a new area, they would take captive, they would take prisoners, and they would march them back to Rome, and they'd have them in a long convoy, and they'd have all the soldiers that they'd kept, they'd have any prisoners that they'd taken, and then at the back of this convoy, they'd have the king or the leader, the military leaders of this conquered nation, and they would march them into the city. The Romans would cheer and throw things at them, and it was, that. It was, a, it was a humiliating act. It was part of Roman warfare. Paul is making a point on there. Basically, it's a shaming ritual is what it, what it was and Paul is using this imagery what he is basically saying is that Jesus did what a Roman general would do with the triumphal procession on the cross on the cross all the spiritual forces were defeated and they were being led in this victory procession by the victor by Jesus Christ it's very powerful imagery that we're being talked about here but it is referring to the spiritual beings all of those spiritual beings that rebelled against God and have been causing mayhem and havoc trying to get man to come away from God trying to deceive man trying to keep man from the cross they were defeated when God did that and they probably thought when they got Jesus on the cross they were about to win the biggest victory ever they were going to kill kill the Messiah and that's what we have. But Jesus, obviously, being God, he, he is omniscient, he knows all their plans, and he outsmarted them like this, and he won the greatest victory. That is part of what the cross is about, just part of it, but it's an amazing picture there. So that is what we see. All of those spiritual forces were defeated at the cross. This is why the devil hates the cross. You see, this is why if you look over in nations where there is unrest, where there are different religions that worship different gods, one thing they always do is they destroy churches, they tear down crosses, they kill those who have crosses around their necks. You see these things across the world. Behind this is the spiritual battle going on. There's no physical reason why these things should make any difference. Behind it is, is a spiritual battle going on, and it all comes back to the cross, really. They were defeated at the cross, they were disarmed, they were humiliated at the cross in this triumphal procession. This is why they hate the cross, and they do everything they can to kill those who carry the cross, who bear the name of the cross, who pick up their cross daily, the believers. 
you see this is what we do. This is how significant the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ were. They left those spiritual forces utterly defeated. Yet, being rebels, they are rebellious to the end. And although defeated, they are still rebelling. And that is a big part of what we see going on around the world today. Many men, unfortunately, will follow with them. And this brings us back to where we are in the book of Revelation. Because if we are get to get to God's desired end for mankind, the paradise that he wanted, the place that he could dwell with them, those rebellious people, beings, but also the, the people that they've persuaded to go with them, must be removed. It's as simple as that, really. You can't have the two coexisting together. And this is the history, and this is what I've been going on about all the time through Revelation. Now, we know that God has kept the message of salvation throughout the entire world to make sure that that is not humanity's fate. We'll talk about that a little bit through this chapter. But let's get into Revelation. We're going to do 12 verses today, hopefully. We might, I'll see how we do. So this is the fifth trumpet judgment. And like I said, this is a very strange chapter, but hopefully with that background now, we'll go into it and we'll have a, a bit of a worldview to understand what's happening. So verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded. Remember, we're in the midst of these trumpet judgments in Revelation. And I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. So we see John here, the author of Revelation, seeing these visions. He sees a star fall from heaven. Now, we know this is not an, uh, like an astronomical body here. Star is often used in the Bible to illustrate the angelic realm. And we also know that this is not a normal star because it says him. The key was given to him. There's clearly a personality there that's being looked at. And also we see him open the bottomless pit. So this is clearly an angelic being that we have here. We don't exactly know who. Many have suggested that this is actually Satan being cast down from heaven. And they get that in a couple of chapters we'll study it. Revelation 12, verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So it could be that we're getting a glimpse of that now. Revelation 12, 12. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, and woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. So we do see this concept of the devil being thrown down. It may be that he is this angel here. We just can't really be sure about that. But we know that the key to the bottomless pit was given to him. God had to give him this key, I believe. They have no authority on their own. Ironically, this pit is the same pit that will one day hold Satan. We read that at the end of the book of Revelation. Remember I said to have the kingdom, you have to have Satan dealt with. Revelation chapter 20 then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key to the abyss. Remember that term? We saw the demons mention that when they were speaking with Jesus. And the great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. You see, Satan's job is to deceive the nations. That is what he does. That is, that is what is one of the characteristics of our time. It is a time of great deception because he is out there deceiving the nations. But in this time, he will be bound. He will no longer be able to do that. And interestingly, he is bound in this place called the abyss. And we've just seen 
in Revelation 9, this is the place now that is actually just about to be opened as one of these judgments. So this is a really serious thing. It's a bottomless pit. Uh, That's actually what the word means, the abyss. The the word in Greek is the bottomless pit. And it's very fascinating. It's the picture that we're given is like if you could imagine a cistern going into the ground if, or if you have a cesspit in your in your house so a long shaft and then it opens up to like a massive bowl that that's the idea that the language is giving us here of this place called the abyss now most likely this is a part of what the bible calls sheol which is just simply the, the place of the dead but it does seem to be different in that it is like a separate area of this place Stay with me here. I know that this stuff is not stuff we usually think about. It's not, really, it's not really our area. It's God's, but it's in his revealed word. But it, it seems to be, if I could call it, a, like a maximum security prison within the place of the dead. And that raises so many questions in itself. But as we see throughout the Bible, they know about it. Like th- think about that, what Legion, these demons, said to Jesus, do not send us into the pit. They said, send us into these pigs, send us anywhere, do not send us into the abyss, they said to Jesus. So it was almost like it was was a place that was known and feared in the spiritual realm, particularly by these rebellious angels. Now, questions that come from this. Why is it already locked? Who are the occupants of this maximum security area? Why are they confined, but the ones that Jesus was conversing with, not confined there at this time what is the difference and these are all massive questions we could spend a long time on it i'm going to try and give you a bit of insight into what they are the actual the inhabitants of this place are a massive theme in jesus's day in the period of second temple judaism this was a massive theme if you've ever heard of the book of enoch this is not a bible book this is just extra jewish extra biblical jewish literature the book of enoch is all about who these people were in the abyss now again that's not a bible book it's not inspired scripture but it is a very important part of jewish history it tells you the things that they were thinking about at this time you'll find it in many other extra biblical writings too and you do find it in the bible too there are plenty of biblical passage that make allusion to this group of people who are in the abyss let me show you a few of these if you turn to the book of jude in the new testament the book of jude in the new testament we have this directly addressed jude chapter 1 verses 6 to 7 jude says this and angels now look again this is a very unusual piece of scripture but it ties in with what we're studying and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day just as sodom and gomorrah and the cities around them since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire so it says this group of angels who left their proper abode were kept in eternal bonds for the great judgment of the great day now that could be read as the day of the lord which is the period we're studying in revelation which is why we're probably about to see them being released in revelation chapter 9 so unlike other principalities and powers that were still allowed to roam around the earth these ones for some reason were guilty of a particularly wicked violation of purpose to the point that god removed them and put them into this maximum security area now i know this is all very it's hard to get your head around what is being talked about here but it does actually make sense in the larger concept of the bible 
What this is referring to is an event that you'll find in Genesis chapter 6. This was the, the historical Jewish view, and this is the view of the early church, and this view did not really change until much, much later, the Reformation time and the post-Enlightenment interpretation, when we didn't like to really talk about these things, when we, we downplayed the supernatural element of our worldview. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, you have this very unusual group of people called the Nephilim. If you've heard that, if you've ever watched YouTube, you've seen millions of, of, of conspiracy theory videos about the Nephilim. And I, I don't want to direct you to any of them. I would just simply direct you to the Bible, accept what it says on this, and don't go off on too many tangents. It, you'll, you'll never stop if you do that. But in Genesis 6-4, it says this, the Nephilim. It's an untranslated word. What it, what it really means is fallen ones. The fallen ones. And it's referring to this group that are now in the abyss this group that Jude said left the proper function of angels and violated God's order to the point that he removed them and locked them up. So it's a very unusual text, but it says this, they were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God, that's another name for angels, the sons of God came to the daughters of men and bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Very unusual passage and it seems to imply Whereas God made humans and angels separate, we know that angels, obviously, throughout the Bible many times, appear in physical form as humans. In part of these rebelling angels, there seemed to be a, a time going on where they went outside the bounds prescribed by what angels were supposed to do, and they intermixed with human people at this time. And you think that sounds so crazy, I don't even know how to make sense of that. And it's true, it is crazy. It's dealing with something that we don't really know or understand, I'll be frank with you. But understand the purpose behind it. You have to understand the purpose. Remember, the cosmic battle going on is that Satan is trying to rebel against God. He wants to take the place of God and he wants the worship of God. Right back in the book of Genesis, after he persuaded Adam to sin, that was his first victory, he, he caused the fall of mankind. He was immediately told that one day a seed of the woman, the seed of mankind, is going to come, he's going to destroy you, Satan. You're going to be destroyed through the seed of Satan. So it makes absolute sense that he then put his focus from him and his fallen angels on trying to corrupt and to stop that from happening. One of the ideas he obviously had was to do this, to try and corrupt the race of mankind through his angels. How that happens, we don't know. It's very hard for us to comp comprehend. But you can see his logic behind it there. But God said that is a violation of the order for which I have created angels. And he took all of them and he put them in this maximum security thing called the abyss. And that's like, we could go further on that, but that, that's as much as I really want to go into that. We find it mentioned in the book of Jude for our New Testament. We also find it mentioned in the book of Second Peter. Second Peter 2 verses 4 to 6. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. It's the same group of people. There seem to be this group of angels that are already confined. They are a specific subset of sinning angels, and this is why they are chained and others are not chained. And this is why we see the demons plead for Jesus to send them into the pigs rather than to send them into the abyss with this other lot. Later on, we're going to meet a character who comes from the abyss in Revelation. He's called the Beast. When they have finished their testimony, Revelation 11, verse 7, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them, talking of God's two witnesses, and he will overcome them and kill them. So all of this involved is, is giving us a view behind the curtain of this world, as I see, to see the battle going on behind of what is happening. 
So let's go back to Revelation, verse 2. He opened the bottomless pit, smoke went up out the pit, smoke of a great furnace, the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Now you see how different this time is to anything else. Like this is not just our world gone bad, this is something completely different going on here. Permission was given to open the pit, this is a very dramatic scene. As you open it, steam and fire burst out of it to the point that the clouds are darkened. This may actually be one of the reasons why we get the sun darkened and these cosmic signs that we talked about. So all these people chasing eclipses and blood moons and all these different astronomical things, they're probably totally, they might just be completely off the ball with that sort of stuff. This might be a supernatural thing of the, the likes of which we can't really imagine. Verse 3, then the smoke came out, then out of the smoke, back in Revelation now, out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them as the power of scorpions of earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it, they will long to die, and death flees from them. Very serious judgment that we see here happening. We get a glimpse of now of what is coming out of the abyss. They are described as being locusts. Of course, he's not describing literal locusts in the sense of the tiny little creatures that we have, but he is using an analogy like we often see. These are clearly spiritual beings coming out of the pit. But the parallel again, do you remember I said these things always parallel one of the judgments of Egypt? What was one of the judgments that Moses brought upon Egypt? It was locusts, wasn't it? Often in the Old Testament, we see locusts being used as a way to teach about judgment. The book of Joel does this too. In fact, the book of Joel that speaks so much about the day of the Lord initially starts by speaking about an actual locust thing that happened in ancient Israel. And he used it to teach about the coming Babylonians. And then in the end of his book, he used it to teach about this final period of the day of the Lord. Let me read to you Joel 1.4. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion and its fangs of a lioness. Remember those descriptions. Joel used this imagery to talk about the coming judgment on Israel. And we see in Revelation 9 that these locusts are told not to harm the grass. The only thing that they cannot touch is the grass and the vegetation, and they can't touch those who were sealed on their foreheads. Remember, we read about those being sealed last week. Everyone else, these people known as earth dwellers, are fair game at this time. But everyone else that they're allowed to touch. But also notice it says that they're not allowed to kill them. What will happen is that the, the, whatever this actually means, we're not sure, but they will be able to inflict some sort of pain upon mankind that will be so much that they will, people will want to die, but they can't. And remember at this time, God has still got people on the earth telling people to repent and accept the message of salvation. Like, so th this is almost like why people are not dying in this state is because God, again, is still offering salvation to people, but these are generally those who at this point in their life have made a decision to reject God and not to follow him. In fact, they're following the beast at this point. The pain will be so intense that they'll want to die and not find it. Now again, if we go back to our eschatology here, remember I argued for what I call the pre-tribulation rapture. Those who have a post-tribulational view here, I believe have real trouble with this passage because it is very hard to come up with a justified purpose for why the bride of Christ 
would be on the earth at this point, because the text does not say that the Bride of Christ would be protected against this. It says the sealed forehead ones, 144,000 Jewish believers at this time will be, say, will be sealed, makes no mention of the church here. It's very hard to come up with a reason why that would be there. That's just as an aside if you're into that sort of thing. Verse 7, the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They had tails like scorpions and stings, and the sting in their tail had the power to hurt men for five months. They have a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his name is Apollyon. So what we have here is very unusual, a, a series of descriptive similitudes. So these are not literal descriptions, because you can notice that, by the way, he keeps saying, it was like this, it was like that, it was like this, it was like that. He's trying to describe something that he's probably never seen before and something that we can barely even visualise, but this is the description that we get. But remember I said, he's not just... This is all coming from the Old Testament and it's coming again from the book of Joel that first describes this locust army. Let me read you a little bit of Joel chapter 2. Speaking of the, the locust army... Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. That's very similar. War horses, they run. They leap on the top of mountains, crackling flame of fire, consuming stubble. Men run from them. People turn pale in front of them. They climb the wall like soldiers. They march in line. They do not deviate from their paths. They rush on the city. They rush on the wall. They climb into houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quake and the heavens trembles. The Lord utters his voice before this great army. Surely his camp is very great. And on and on it goes. He's describing, obviously, an army here. In Joel's day, he was talking about the coming judgment of the Babylonians and using a, a, a locust plague to teach us about that. But he also jumps further to this period of the day of the Lord. And what we're reading about is the spiritual part of this happening. And then verse 11, we get a very unusual verse. They have a king over them. This army that came out of the abyss have a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name is Abaddon and his name is Apollyon. That means to, both of those terms just mean destruction. Uh, that's what it is. So we don't know whether this is someone who is on God's side, who is a God, or whether this is really one of these confined people who is the leader down there. I would probably lean towards that interpretation for some later reasons that we'll look at next week. What we are seeing here is a very unusual scene. I'm very much aware of that. But we are seeing behind the curtain, and we are seeing the cosmic battle go on behind. And then look at verse 12. We'll finish here. The first woe is past. Remember, we had three woes for the last trumpets. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. So what we are looking at, if we, we take a step back from this stuff that's very unfamiliar to us and look at it from the big picture, we are seeing is for all those people who have rejected God, whose sin and pride have caused them to follow after the beast, to rebel against him, what they are basically saying when they do that, and this is not just they didn't know about God, remember, and they don't know, how do they know if they haven't heard, you know about God at this point, you know about the other side at this point too, and you make a choice at this point too. This is the era of history that we are in. And when you make that choice, you are basically saying, God, I, I, I do not want to follow you, I do not want to be with you, and that means by default you are choosing the other side, even if you can claim that you don't really know it, I don't think they can at this point. What you are basically saying is, I want the world without God. And we have a word for that, we call that hell, don't we? That is ultimately, if you want to track it down. And what God is basically doing here 
Is he saying, fine, if that's what you want, how about you experience a little bit of hell on earth and you can see what that's like? And he opens the great abyss and he lets them see who it is they're really following. All these false religions, these demonic forces that persuade people to follow these other gods, these other these totems, all these things that happen around the world that are very unusual, God says, fine, let's see how you like that. And he does allow this to happen for a, a very short period of time. This is why Jesus says that if he hadn't cut these days short, the whole of the earth would have been destroyed. But this is a very set time that we have here. Now, that's what he does. Now, let me remind you again as we close that this was never the intent for mankind. God never meant mankind to be caught up in this. For man, he created a paradise, a paradise where he would dwell with his creation, a place of communion with himself. This abyss that we're talking about was created for these rebellious angels so that they could not destroy and corrupt what he created for mankind. We know this from Matthew 25, verse 41, when Jesus says, to those on his left, he will say, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. These things were created for those rebellious angels so that one day they will be gone and are unable to corrupt and deceive and cause havoc forever. And yet we still learn that there are men who choose to follow them in their rebellion too. Now the question is, where will we be forever? That is the question that confronts us after we look at a text like this. God has seen to it with that victory procession that he had, beating though all of these powers, defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. He has seen to it that there is a way that we can be reconciled to him, that we spend eternity in his kingdom where this paradise will be regained, if I could quote the ancient book. Paradise regained, paradise lost, the, the famous book. But that is what is basically happening. This is the cosmic battle of the ages. And as the prophet Joel said, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. There are some serious decisions we make when reading a text like this. And I would implore you to take the Apostle Paul's advice and make the right decision where he begs people to be reconciled with God because that is not the future that God has for them. God has a much better future, one of eternity with him in paradise. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.